0: Welcome to Move the District, where you can find the best ways to stay healthy, stay moving, and stay informed in Washington DC. Now, more than ever, we have a wealth of information and opportunities to live the high-performance, pain-free life that we want. My name is Dr. Mike Yassen, and my goal is to show you the backstories behind the individuals and businesses that provide these opportunities for everyone, no matter who you are. Now, let's move. Move the District is sponsored by Big League Performance and Rehab. At Big League Performance and Rehab, we help active adults stay that way, pain-free and active during the sports and activities that they love for life. We do this by working on four different areas. That's movement, nutrition, stress management, and sleep. When we optimize these four areas, you feel better, you move better, and you live better. Head to Rehab.com to see how we can help you stay active for life. All right. Welcome back to episode forty-four, four, four. I am uh, excited to be back for another week. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Yassen. I got a very special episode. I feel like I say that every week, but this week, I, I really mean it. I really mean it this week. Uh, we are uh, joined today by Dr. Oliver he is the He is an orthopedic spine surgeon with MedStar Washington Hospital Center. And he's the assistant professor of orthopedics at Georgetown University. Oliver, thanks for joining us today, man.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm always excited to uh, get a, an orthopedist on here. I've been talking about that for a while, so I'm excited to have you on here, especially a, a spine surgeon, because, I mean, I feel like everybody's got back pain, right? Everybody.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing, especially in the past year uh, with people being more sedentary, you know, with the COVID-19 pandemic, I've seen definitely a big uptick in neck and back pain with people sitting at home um, being too sedentary. And then myself included, it's my personal experience going through the same the same thing the rest of the world has gone through. So um, it's definitely been an interesting time. Thankfully, the majority of neck and back pain is non-surgical and then I send them to the physical therapist and that's pretty much it and they get better. Ah,
0: there you go. Yeah. Buttering me up from the beginning. I love it. Um what, what's the stat? It's like eighty percent of Americans at some point in their lifetime experience lower back pain, right? Is that is that
1: is is, is that accurate? It's up, there. it's up there. I don't I don't remember the exact stat. It is definitely 80% of, it might be a little bit higher than that, but yeah, yes, I mean even higher overwhelming majority of Americans at some point in their adult lifetime will get a severe debilitating episode of low back pain.
0: There you go. Uh, and so you had your own lower back pain in the past year is that what you're saying
1: yeah actually well it was about a year and a half ago so for me my experience with my flare-up was I never in my life deadlifted before and you know I always did you know the basic American guy workout I'd go to the gym I would do some basic lifts I would do some squats on legs day some leg presses and one day finally one of my buddies convinced me to start deadlifting and you know this is after years of hearing just enough people say just the benefits of you know talk about the benefits of deadlifting. Mm-hmm. And of course I did it the wrong way. Like I had nobody coach me through it. I, you know, <laughs> I thought it was the same as a squat stand. So, you know, I was like I got into the deadlift position. I hyperextended my back and I tried to lift it up like, you know, with my back in squat position and uh, totally overloaded my facet joints and my lumbosacral junction. And then and I wasn't even lifting that much. I mean I think I was lifting geez maybe maybe 95 pounds.
0: And I know you're a big, you're a big, strong guy. So that's not like a lot of
1: weight. No, I mean, it didn't feel very heavy. And then, uh, two days later, everything, like I woke up, my, my back was locked up. I mean, I could barely move. Mm And I mean, thankfully I knew exactly what it was. I mean, I I just needed to do some stretches and take some anti-inflammatories, but it took a good three weeks for it to resolve. I mean, it definitely was not a quick process.
0: I was going to say, what does the, what does the back doctor do
1: when he hurts his back? Well, I'll tell you, number one, I definitely did not want to get any imaging, um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. So this is interesting because you, you are, in.
0: it's, I have, I have a list here of, of things that I want to talk about. And it's like, you're just checking them off one by one here.
1: Okay. Nice. Nice. So, you know, people come to me every single day with neck pain, back pain, you know, shooting pains down their arms and shooting pains down their legs. So when it comes to, especially younger patients who come in with acute neck and back pain, if they go through physical therapy or they go through anti-inflammatories or whatever conservative measures, and they've done it for a few weeks, and now they, now they get to the point where they're like, okay, I'm not getting better. What's next? Well, what's next is to get imaging. And usually you start with an x-ray, but you start with an x-ray early on. And most x-rays don't show much. But then when you get the MRI, that's where things get interesting because at least 25% of people by the time they're 25 years old are going to have abnormal findings on the MRI of the neck or their back. Those studies actually, those studies were done here in Washington, D.C. So back in the 90s, before we really understood what MRIs meant, you know, I mean, MRI technology is relatively new. I mean, it wasn't really, it wasn't around in the 70s. It started, you know, they really started to pick up in the 80s. And then in the early 90s, actually at GW, when Sam Weasel, who's our former chairman at um, Georgetown, when he was a, when he was an attending and then Scott Bowden, who's now at Emory, was a resident at, at GW, they did a study where they took asymptomatic people off the streets and they said, so they, they, they want, they want to just a bunch of people from anywhere from 25 to 85 years old. And they said, Hey, have you ever had neck or back pain in your life? And if they said, no, they said, perfect. Come get an MRI. So in the 25 year old cohort, they took patients who've never had neck or back pain in their life. And they said, come get an MRI. And a quarter of them had abnormal findings. So the one thing we've learned is that just because you have a, uh, an abnormal finding on MRI, a degenerative disc, a disc bulge, uh, you know, uh, a protrusion, of this or that, you know, the problem with these radiology reports is you read the radiology report and it scares you because they're using all these big words. Yep. And the reality is, is that the majority of the time, the findings on the MRI don't necessarily correlate with symptoms. The majority yep. of the time. Sometimes it does, but the majority yeah. of the time it doesn't.
0: It, it, I think it just tells you that pain is such a much more complex things. It's not just as cut and dry as I have a herniated disc. I have pain.
1: Yeah, no, right. not at all. Not at all. Um, and in fact, the majority of disc herniations are so minor, they're more in the bulge category. They're actually not necessarily herniations and are not necessarily related to sciatica or pinched nerve or radiating, you know, leg pains or arm pains. Um, so that's why the, I mean, really the, the mainstay of treatment for axial neck pain or axial back pain, meaning without the radiating nerve symptoms, the mainstay treatment is physical therapy, core strengthening, stretching, conditioning, um, You know, all the things that you know, I'm sure you've, you've spoken about over and over again on the podcast. But um, so yeah, so for in my scenario, I definitely did not wanna get an MRI or any x-rays because it just didn't matter. I didn't wanna, you know, if I had something bad on my back, I didn't wanna know about it because it wasn't gonna change the management. I knew it was gonna get better with time.
0: Now, at what point does an MRI become necessary or, or, or becomes a, a good idea?
1: Yeah. So anytime you have any neurologic symptoms, meaning pain, numbness, or weakness in the distribution of a nerve. So in the lower back, it would be what we call a radiculopathy or a sciatica, meaning the pain shoot, travels to your glute, to your thighs, down to your legs, and maybe your toes. So a typical sciatica picture, when people have a, a, a severely pinched nerve, they'll say, it hurts in my back, but I have a lot of pain in my glute in the back and the side of my thigh, sometimes down the leg, and I get numbness and tinglings in the toes. So that's that's a typical SATA picture. If that's the case, and they've had the symptoms for more than a few weeks, then absolutely you get an MRI, you wanna know what's going on. Um, or if people have just neck or back pain, but they've had it for more than six weeks and they've already failed some conservative measures, at that point you get the MRI to make sure you're not missing you know, the zebras, you're not missing an infection, you're not missing a tumor, you're not missing, you know, the things that are extremely rare. Um, and, you know, really, at that point, it's, you're mostly getting it to give people sort of some peace of mind to know, okay, you're okay. You know, you just got to be more consistent and buy into physical therapy and just give it more time.
0: How do you address that with your patients? When they come in with, you know, just, you know, you're, you're running the mill back pain, and they're like, I need an MRI,
1: um, It depends on the timing. If if the, well, thankfully now insurance companies don't necess- don't let us get an MRI right off the bat. Most insurance companies are are putting a hard stop on it. So in a way that actually makes the physician's job a little bit easier. So if it's if it's an acute episode, meaning they've had the symptoms for less than two weeks, I'll say, listen, your your insurance company is not going to pay for this thing. Let's just get you started with physical therapy, anti inflammatories, um, and give it a few weeks there's a 90% chance you're going to improve. If not, then we go with, you know, then we get the MRI and we take it from there. So gotcha. that, you know, that, that's usually a pretty straightforward conversation.
0: Yeah. And cause I, I, I feel like I've seen, on, on, on my side, like people will, you know, they'll come in and like, I just need an MRI. I just need an MRI. And sometimes it is just like that peace of mind where they just like want to know like, all right, I'm, I'm okay. And, and sometimes I feel like, um, you know, it, it, it's that discussion that needs to be had where it's like, Hey, like let's just give this some time before we actually delve into, you know, getting an imaging. I think it was, I think it was James Andrews who said, like, if you want to find something wrong with somebody, stick them in an MRI machine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it, I mean Jimmy Andrews has been practicing for a very long time, so he, he knows best.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I would, uh, I'd say so. What are some of the uh, like more common, um, you know, mechanic, biomechanical injuries that you would see with someone besides like a bulging disc?
1: Um, so well, it depends. Are you talking about an older patient or a younger patient like uh, less than 45 or over 60?
0: Let's start under
1: 45. So under 45 for patients who have neck pain or back pain, if it's anything other than like a muscle flare, right? Anything other than something that's myofascial, you're probably going to see a little bit of facet arthropathy. Meaning some, you know, some mild degeneration of the facet joints, which are the joints in the back of the neck or the back of the lower back, because uh, the nerves travel right under those facet joints as they're exiting the spine. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll see some degeneration and some bulging of the discs. That's mild, meaning the disc has lost maybe 10% of its height, but minimal in the grand scheme of things. Um, sometimes, especially in younger patients who've had sort of chronic back pain that date that goes back to their high school days, you will often fi- oftentimes find a spondylolisthesis at L5-S1. So yes. spondylolisthesis means slippage of one vertebra over the other. Spondylose means vertebra, listhesis mm-hmm. means slippage. And so it's very common in older patients over the age of 60 who have sort of run-of-the-mill degeneration of their back or their neck, they will have slippage of one bone over the other because as the disc generates, it loses its integrity to some extent, and the bones start to slip on each other. And the most, the most, most of the time, it's stable, and there's nothing to do about it. But in younger patients, actually 6% of the population have a condition called spondylolysis, where the L5 vertebra, which is the lowest vertebra on the lower back, just above the sacrum, part of that vertebra, which is called the pars interarticularis, which is a bridge of bone that connects the joint above to the joint below, actually starts to separate when they're teenagers. It's a really fascinating condition. Yeah, and we think it has to do with the mechanics of the lower back. So when people have a very high sacral slope, um, it's you know, a, a lot like gymnasts. gymnasts gymnast. well, gymnast may not necessarily have a high sacral slope, but they—they're what they're doing is they're constantly hyperextending. Right. So athletes who are who are who are in a place where they're constantly hyperextending. So gymnasts soccer players, um, linebackers, You've seen it with weight, weightlifters too, as well. Yep. Weightlifters where you're like you're just constantly hyperextending and overloading those L5 S1 facet joints. You put, you put extra stress on the pars at L5. Yeah. And you're at a higher chance of causing a lysis or separation of that pars where it kind of, you, you end up with micro fractures over time and then it separates. Well, the good news with L5 S1, it's such a stable segment when it separates, most people actually don't know about it. Um so it's very common for people to come in their 50s with their first episode of back pain you get the x-ray and you'll see the L5S1 spondylolisthesis and they've never had back pain in their life. So the good news is it's, it's it tends to be asymptomatic in most people. But 6% of the population has it meaning 6% of people by the time they're 17 18 years old have that spondylolisthesis at L5S1. Um so that's another common thing that I see. Um mm-hmm. Now,
0: now, at at what point do you transition from, all right, we've tried our hand with conservative care and let's, let's go the more, you know, let's go the surgical route. Let's go the more invasive route.
1: So there are two scenarios when you do that. The first scenario, when people have concerning neurologic deficits, meaning they have a pinched nerve in the neck or the back or their spinal cord is being compressed and now they have weakness. So if anyone comes to me and they say, Doc, I've had three days of severe pain and my foot is really weak, you're not going to sit on that. You're going to take them to the operating room very quickly. You're going to decompress them. Or if someone comes in, they say, Doc, I've had three days of severe pain uh, and I've got numbness in my saddle region, meaning in the private area, and mm-hmm. I'm starting to lose some urine function, you're going straight to the operating room for that, right? But those are rare. I mean, that that happens to me maybe a handful of times a year you know, out of the thousands of patients that I see. Right. The more common scenario for surgery is, doc, I have this shooting arm pain or the shooting leg pain. I've gone through two months of physical therapy. I've done two or three different epidural injections. I'm not getting better. It's affecting quality of life. Okay, now let's operate and surgery can be very successful. There's a 90% success rate for alleviating neck, uh, arm pain or leg pain when you decompress the nerve. Um, what oftentimes happens is people come to me, they said, okay, I've done a month of physical therapy. I'm still having pain that's where the conversation becomes interesting because ah uh, yes you, when they you come again me,
0: literally checking off the things on my
1: list here yeah yeah so when, <laughs> so when patients come in and they're like okay i've done or they'll say you know I've, I've, done, I've been doing pt for two months this is a very common scenario and my arm still bothers me my leg still bothers me i still have neck pain or back pain the first question i ask them is okay what does that mean like what does it mean that you've been doing physical therapy for two months and the majority of patients will say, well, I'm going to the therapist once a week or twice a week. Okay. And what are you doing on the other days? Uh-huh. Uh, not much. So yeah. Then, actually, I'm like, okay, then time out. Let's, let's sort of, let's manage expectations here. So, so the, the way I like to sort of frame this to people, as I say this, and, you know, th- who, who think of a high performer that you like. So for me, I, I use Michael Jordan all the time because everyone knows who Michael Jordan is. I'll say, listen, Michael Jordan never got good at basketball by playing twice a week it just doesn't happen. So he decided that this is the thing he wants to be great at. So he played basketball every single day. You're in this scenario where you're having neck pain or back pain or arm pain or leg pain, and you want to get better. If you're only going to therapy once a week or twice a week, okay, it's great that you want to therapy, but if that's all you're doing, you're not going to get better. You have to supplement it with a home exercise program every single day. This has to be a daily pursuit. In fact, you should probably do it twice a day before you can really say, okay, physical therapy didn't work. Because the most important thing is consistency. And that's with pretty much everything in life. That's usually the first conversation I have. So oftentimes, I'm actually turning them right back around and re-engaging them with their therapist, but with a different, you know, sort of with after having had that pep talk and hopefully with them having a better mind frame in terms of what that means. And usually, I'm sending them to the non-surgical spine specialist. So the interventional spine doc, the pain doc, they have different types of names. But at that point, you're considering a cortisone shot, either an epidural injection or a facet shot or... Some kind of non-surgical intervention to try to help improve the pain, so that they can be more engaged with their physical therapy and their home exercise program.
0: Where do you, where do you think the the drop off is? There, the lack of communication between yourself, between the patient, between the physical therapist. <clears throat> you know, because I, I think with with that, it, it's it's definitely a, a common thing where people are like, "Oh, I did physical therapy for two months and, yeah. and it didn't work." And it's not, honestly, what do
1: they- I I think people, myself included, we're just we we tend to be stubborn. Mm -hmm. Uh, especially in 40 year olds and 50 year olds, because someone who's 40 years old has not accepted the fact that they're 40 years old. And I'm speaking out of experience. I'm 37 and I'm starting, I'm finally starting to understand, okay, I'm 37. I'm not 25. Yeah. And you know how it is. Like when you're in your mid twenties, you have an injury, you ignore it, it gets better. And that's it. Like, you know, life goes on when you get into your fourth and fifth decade of life, you can't ignore those injuries. They're just not going to go away. Your body doesn't have the same healing potential. Yep. You know, you, you need to have a very different approach. And you know, it it takes a while to it takes a while to believe your body, and it's amazing. And even in people who are very educated, you know, like I'll give you my example. I've got a very nagging medial epicondylitis. I've got a very nagging golfer's elbow, and it took me two weeks to realize, wait a second, I I should probably do something about this. And I was working out through it and making it worse. And I'm the musculoskeletal expert. I mean, I feel like we're we're always the why are we always (laughs) It's the worst. Like,
0: you know, when it comes to like our own issues, I feel like as health professionals, we always uh, this is a talk I was having with Zoe the other day is like we're we're always the worst at like taking care of our own bodies.
1: Yeah, and, and but I I think it's because human nature is human nature. Yeah, you know, I think we, we we tend to want to ignore what's broken and just keep moving forward. You know, and 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 I see in older patients all the time. Older patients can live with a tremendous amount of a deficit, whether it's the you know back pain or spinal stenosis or I mean, I'll, I'll have patients come in the clinic in a wheelchair and I'll say, how long has this been going on? They'll say, well, two or three years where my balance has been getting worse. Well, you're finally now getting to someone to see what's going on. I mean, you know, it's like, it's like the frog in boiling water. When, when something starts insidiously and then slowly gets worse, you will put up with a lot of it, with a lot of deficits before you say, okay, it's time to do something about it. I think yeah. it's just the nature. <laughs> yeah, I, I think,
0: um, there, there tends to be this, this acceptance of, of pain, as you get as a, as a normal part of the aging process. Yeah. And it's like, well, I'm, I'm 50. So my back is gonna hurt. And, you know, I feel like this is like a constant conversation I have with patients every day, where it's like, no, pain is not a normal part of the aging process. Maybe yeah. you don't lift as much weight, maybe you don't run as fast, maybe you don't recover as quickly. But guess what, you're not supposed to be in pain. And people are like they kind of look at you like you have three heads and i'm like yeah like you don't have to be always like yeah. pain is a normal part of the human experience we're supposed to have pain it's a it's a part of our life but you shouldn't have pain on a regular basis that's just not part of you know what what we're supposed to do as humans and and i think people are just kind of like well i think my back or my knee is supposed to hurt every day because i'm because i'm 50 now and I've, I've run marathons or i played football growing up and i think having that uh, conversation with people. And like, this like light bulb goes off That like, oh, I don't have to be in pain. I, it happens a lot with, uh, when I do like workshops at like a CrossFit gym or another like workout studio. And I ask people, I go, I go, do you think it's normal for the resting state of the human body to be in pain? People kind of like, look at me like what? And, and then I'm like, no, the answer is no guys. <laughs> it takes them all yeah. a second to like realize it. Cause it's true. Like people are just putting up with pain on a regular basis. And, 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 They don't realize that, like, oh, you can actually do something about it. And, you know, yeah, you know, sometimes it's not debilitating to the point where they can't walk, but maybe it's preventing them from going, you know, running with their friends, or maybe it's preventing them from picking up their kid or carrying their groceries or, you know, driving to go see their grandparents, whatever it might be. And and I think we're able to, you know, put that light bulb in their head, like, hey, like, there's something to actually be done about this.
1: Yeah. it's. I mean, I say something very similar to my patients. The way that I word it is I tell them, you don't have to live like this. You don't have to live with this. You know, we yeah. can, especially when, when there's a good surgical solution and they failed everything. You know, my message to them is, okay, yes, everything has risks, including surgery. We can minimize those risks and you don't have to live with these symptoms. So especially in older patients, you know, with spinal stenosis or spinal cord compression, it becomes a quality of life issue. The other thing that for me helps a lot, at least in terms of communicating with my patients is kind of painting the big picture, you know, especially patients who come to me and they're sort of like midlife, they're like in their forties to sixties. You know, I say, listen, what's your goal here? Like, you know, why are you working so hard? Like what's, what's the, what's the point of everything that you're doing in life? You know, are, are you, are you doing this for the next few years or are you looking out for your 95 year old self? And when I sort of change their timeline and make them realize that, you know, everything they do now is going to make a difference when they're 95 years old. And that I want them to be very functional 95-year-olds and get to the centenarian Olympics, when I put that on their plate and make them realize, whoa, there's a much bigger scope out there, yep. sometimes that helps them buy in more into the process that they're in you know, now you know, as, as their younger selves.
0: Yeah. One of, my, one of my favorite quotes is Teddy Roosevelt. He said, uh, you can either wear out or you can rust out. And he said, I'd rather wear out. And, and I was like, I was like, that's, that's, that's a good quote right there. And I, I use that with, with a lot of, a lot of patients, but yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like, yeah, you're, you know, you're 40 now, you, you, you run marathons, but you want to run, you also want to run marathons when you're 60, 70, like, you know, how, how can we make that happen? And, and this is, this is the route, you know, you have to get on. So let me ask you this,
1: because I'd love your perspective on this. Cause for me, I I have a, with, with that specific scenario. So people who love to run in my experience especially with spine related conditions, I'll say, listen, you love this one thing that is flaring you up. If you've been through physical therapy and you've done all these things and you still flare up, well, have you thought about maybe just letting go of this form of exercise and picking up a different form of exercise that's less strenuous on your body? You can still get the same satisfaction. You can still get the endorphins and all the things that make you feel good after a workout, but maybe your body's just not made for this form of exercise. It's interesting because there's controversy on that. Some people say, no, people should be able to do whatever they want. Others say, well, you may not have the body to do whatever you want. You may have to modify your activities. What's your take on that?
0: I, I, I think it's, it's uh, it, the, the famous answer. It depends oh. um, because I think with, with those situations, I think we have a duty to our, our patients to, you know, help them do the activity that they love to do instead of, instead of telling them they can't run. You know how can we get them to run maybe it's maybe it's not a marathon you know maybe it's a half marathon maybe it's only a 5k maybe it's only a mile you know um but how how can we make it work for them you know like one one older um patient that i work with now you know instead of him just running continuously we have him run now in intervals so he runs two minutes he walks 30 seconds we find ways to make it work i think that's the important thing he loves to run he doesn't want to stop running and so it's like how can we do it and so we found that continuously running tends to flare up his, his issues. So we're like, well, let's try intervals. So we do two minutes on and we've got to, we, we, we worked up from 30 30 to a minute 30, you know, and, and at two, you know, two minutes of running 30 seconds of walking, he's able to do what he loves to do. And, and, you know, we found, you know, we found a way to make it work. And I think that's the idea is that we should get resourceful as, as, as resourceful as possible. And yeah, you know, there, there might come a, a moment where it's like, Hey, like this isn't going to work, you know, and, and, you know, we got to find, but, until we can really get to that end of our line like we have to like give it everything we got I think until we can really say like all right we tried everything and you know running's not going to be in the cards and even still then it's like well all right well let's let's try walking you know um and 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 there there, because there is so much when it comes to running that you can work on you know whether it's um stride frequency you know stride length whether it's it's you know um, you know, pacing, um, you know, like I said before, like intervals and 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 finding, you know, finding ways. I think running kind of just like, kind of like squatting, kind of like deadlifting. It's like a spectrum. Yeah. And, you know, to take squatting, for example, like on one end of the spectrum, you have the person who just wants to get up and down from the couch or get, you know, up and down from the toilet. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the guy doing the 300 pound squat. And it's like, you know, someone wants to get back to squatting, it's like, how can we find that entry point to loading? And you have to mm-hmm. find that point where they can tolerate, maybe it is they can only get off the toilet, maybe that's it. So you work on, you know, getting up from a, a lower point, and then you gradually progress to, you know, whatever their ceiling might be. And yeah. I think the same thing is true for, for running, where, you know, what can they tolerate? Can they can they walk, you know, if they can walk, well, let's walk them. Um, you know, and and you know, if, if they can, you know, can they hop, can they, can they, uh, bound, you know, what can they do? And then let's find a way to make it work. Um, some people just need that like stress relief. Right. So, you know, they're like, I run for 15 minutes on the treadmill and it hurts. Well then, all right, well, well, maybe you do 15 minutes on the elliptical instead, you know, for, for things like that. But for people who are like, I need to run, you know, I think we have a duty to make it as, you know, to be as resourceful as possible to get them back to running.
1: Yeah. I love that. I mean, so, you know, and that's the difference between the physical therapy world and the surgical world. For me, I'm spending maybe 15 or 20 minutes with the patient. You really, if it's a non-surgical issue, there's not going to be much of a conversation. I'm just trying to get them to the person who's going to be able to help them more for you every day. It it sounds like it's like every day you're, 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 it's like the lab, right? Like you're, you're doing these experiments in a way where you're trying to figure out the best formula for that one patient with their one body at that point in time change their body, see if things can like, it it seems like it's just such a gratifying place to be when you see them make those improvements.
0: It's it's problem solving. That's what it comes down to. It's problem solving. And, and that's why, you know, here at big league, you know, everything is, is one-on-one for an hour because, you know, we get an hour to actually to problem solve, to, to listen to your issues. And, and I mean, I mean, you know, you've had people come in who have had, you know, chronic lower back pain for, for 10 plus years and, and they have a story to tell you and, you know, and, and it's tough to get everything in, in a, in a 10, 15 minute window. And, you know, a lot of other traditional physical therapy places, that's all you get. You know, you get pushed yeah. off to an aid, you get put on a bike in the corner and, uh, you know, you don't get a chance to actually problem solve. And I think, you know, being able to spend that kind of quality time with with somebody and one, let them tell you their story. I think one, that's empowering. And two, you know, it allows us to get to the the root of things because, yeah, something that might not get talked about in those in that you know 10-15 minute um initial intake and and something might come up and then you know they'll be like oh you know my my leg still hurts and they're like well i did this this and this, this and then you know 10 minutes into the session they're like oh and also yesterday i did this workout class and i jumped for 30 minutes and it's like oh well, there you go. And yeah, exactly. And, and so, you know, you start to learn a little bit more about the patient and, or, or, you know, then, you know, 30 minutes into the session, they talk about how they didn't sleep last night because they got into a fight with their partner and they're stressed out because of work and, you know, all these other things are happening. And, and then you start to, you know, go down that whole rabbit hole of like, all right, like, well, like, you know, how can we manage their stress? How can we, you know, you know, manage their, their, their workload? How can we manage, you know, all these other things, how can we help them with their sleep? And, and that's, you know, ultimately to paint that whole picture of wellness. Um, cause yeah, sometimes, you know, when it's, when, when they do have, you know, a runner does have knee pain, for example, you know, it's more than just, you know, it's more than just biomechanical. Maybe it's not the meniscus, maybe it's not a sciatic thing. Maybe it's, you know, may, maybe it is, you know, emotional. Maybe it is, there is a, a stress side to it that, um, you know, is exacerbating things, you know, it's one of those things where, like, sure, they have like something underlying, but then their stress of their their daily job or life or whatever is absolutely exacerbating those symptoms. And I think, you know, if we can control all those other things, because like, running is, you know, I don't know, half hour out of the day, what's going on the other 23 and a half hours of the day, right?
1: right. Yeah, I mean, I'll say it's so refreshing to hear you say that and to see that you recognize that. Um, And I think society as a whole is starting to recognize just, mental health a lot more than we did 10 years ago for in in my world, it's all like people come to me all the time with trapezius pains Mm -hmm. and their MRI is very unimpressive. There's no pinched nerve. And the next question I asked them is, okay, tell me about your life. Like what's your work schedule. Like what's your personal, you know, like tell me about your stressors. And of course we all concentrate our stress, or most of us store our stress in our traps. it's a very point it's a very common point where we get a lot of myofascial pains myself included you know if i've had a couple of stressful days i start getting tight in my traps oh yeah and um and when people start to recognize the the stressors they can start to modify them and start to potentially work on eliminating them it's really fascinating
0: people with higher levels of job dissatisfaction have higher levels of chronic neck pain yeah absolutely you know so so you know it, it 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 goes hand in hand for sure i mean there was there was one kid I worked with, I think I, t- I might've told this story in the podcast before, but he I was at my old job. He was a young kid at, at GW and he was fixated on, he was a junior, he was fixated on graduating after his junior year. That's what all he wanted to do was just graduate early. Cause he thought the secret to like success and happiness was like, get a good job, make a lot of money. And then it'll like make friends. And so, you know, we were, we were talking and like, he didn't have much of a social life. It was, you know, I, oh, I'm studying this. I got this test, I'm working on this paper. Um, and, and, you know, basically the two things he did was he'd go to the gym and lift weights and he would, you know, do, do homework. And, and that was it. That was just like, oh, and then he had a, like a pretty serious like internship. Those were the three things he did. And mm-hmm. we tried everything. He, had a, he ended up hurting his chest with, um, when he was benching. So he had like a, a bit of a pec strain. It was a like classic pec strain. And we tried everything. You know, we tried every kind of hands-on manual manipulation, eccentric loading, everything you could possibly do under the sun. And we just weren't having any success with it. And I'm like, I know it's not a torn peck. I know his peck is there. Like, it's not like a, you know, I know there's not like something deeper underlying. And he went away for a family vacation down in Charleston. And he comes, you know, he comes back and I see him, you know, uh, later that week. And he's like, Mike, I felt great the whole time I was down there in Charleston. And then as soon as I sat back at my desk Monday morning, came back. the pain came back. And I was yeah. like, there you go. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, I think, you know, you're starting to see the focus on the mental side of things. And, you know, just, I think we're we're really just starting to like, understand like the tip of the iceberg when oh, it yeah. comes to pain, you know, like the world of pain science is just like, you know, and I, I don't know about you, but like, that's not something that was really broadly covered in PT school.
1: No, not at all. I mean, same, same in, same in med school and in, you know, orthopedic surgery training and my spine fellowship. I mean, if there was a if there was a, a an obvious reason for the pain, of course we knew about it, right? I mean that's what orthopedics is all about. But the, I feel like the majority of pain that people experience isn't necessarily a straightforward thing, and yeah. and but but those are difficult conversations to have in a in a clinic setting. I mean, when I see someone once or twice in the you know in in, in a clinical setting, and again from my standpoint as a spine surgeon, I'm trying to see if there's a role for me surgically or not. If they're not there is not, then I'm trying to figure out, okay, where can I get this patient so they can get the optimal care? But I do try as much as I can to brush up on some of the, um, some of the less spoken about issues like stress and environmental stressors and family life. And, you know, the, the things that are not quite so easy to talk about, but again, and everyone receives it differently, you know, because when people come in thinking there's something drastically wrong, if, if, if you can't find something drastically wrong to show them, then either they're going to feel great and relax, or they're going to feel like they don't believe you and they have to keep looking.
0: Right. They think you're, they, they want to find something wrong with themselves. They, they think you're a quack. They're like, oh, this guy says, says I'm fine. So why should I even bother coming back? Because yeah. yeah. I've been there before. And it's like finding the right words to be like, look, look. Like, you know, like, like, like for one instance, like one thing I try to say to someone is, you know, say, well, we'll, they'll come in with, with knee pain and, you know, they can do a single leg squat fine on the right side, but the left side, they struggle with single leg squat. And instead of being like, well, you're, you're weak on the left side. It's like, you have an opportunity to improve your strength on the left side. And that way, you know, people don't walk out saying, all right, you're, I'm weak, I'm broken or, and they also don't walk walk out saying I'm fine. It's like, oh, I you know, have this difference, but it's not bad, but I have this difference to like be able to work towards.
1: Yeah. I, I love that. I, Keep it
0: positive. Exactly. And I think that keeps people in that right mindset. Cause, I, cause I, I do think that like the the pain science talk with people is so much more than just like delving into, you know uh, you know, pain is an output from the brain and, and you know, all these other things that, you know, go into to pain and you start talking in, in, in circles around these people and, and their head starts spinning and their eyes glaze over. Uh, and, and ultimately I don't think we're able to, you know, have the intended effect that we, we want. So I think having, you know, the ability to kind of just, just to talk to them about where they're at and, 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 and get, make sure they understand what's happening, I think is, is really important. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think that's, you know, the the big thing with with pain because yeah i think i think for so long it's always just been biomechanical 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 and you know the whole you know biopsychosocial mod- matter a uh, model is you know you know it takes all that stuff other stuff into um you know into account which i think yeah. is, is super but, important. but
1: it's, it's not an easy conversation to have and, and usually it's it should not be the first conversation to have you have to rule right. out all the other things first once you've ruled those things out then you can kind of you know, go and delve deeper into that patient and start to figure out if there are other things going on. Right? Yeah,
0: because especially in the first session, if you start talking about that, they're like, I know. Like, you know, but a, a great,
1: a great question that I ask when patients come to me for a fourth opinion and the, you know, all the imaging's, you know, pretty much negative and there's no no surgical indication and they're having these chronic pains. The question I love to ask them is, hey, when you went last time you went on, on vacation? was your pain as bad as what it was? I ask that question all the time. And oftentimes the answer is no. When I go on vacation, I feel fine.
0: That's, that's a good one. Cause I always, I always make the joke with someone will like, someone will come back from vacation and they'll be like, oh, I felt great. And i will be like, all right, well, guess we're just gonna have to have you, you know,
1: live in Florida from now on, or live in the Bahamas from now on. And, well, and they'll the, laugh the, at it, but. No, I mean, and, and I do have a lot of patients actually who will say that they had to move to Nevada because the, the weather's, you know, the, the climate's more dry Um, and their joints don't bother me. So for sure, I mean, there are definitely some, some environmental factors when it comes to ambient temperature or ambient pressure or humidity that can certainly affect joints and cause certain things to flare up. Um, but yeah, those are not easy conversations to have. They're usually a lot more complex, but
0: (laughs) right. Um, going back to the surgery thing for a second here, you know, someone gets surgery and you know, you go in, you, 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 you know, clean up the issue, whatever it might be. You feel better, right? That's it. hundred percent. You walk out of surgery the next day and you're hundred percent better. That's how Uh, it goes, right?
1: Great question. Great question. So no, not at all. (laughs) And I, I, I I tell my patients almost every single time I operate on someone, I'll tell them that my job is actually the easy job. My job is a couple hours in the operating room. I'm going to decompress your spinal cord. I'm going to decompress your nerves. I'm going to stabilize your spinal segments. And then, and that's it. That part's done. And usually when you decompress a nerve in the first couple of days, in the first 48 hours, the nerve starts to feel better very quickly. Meaning when people have lumbar stenosis and they, they they have severe radiating leg pains when they stand up, when you decompress those nerves in the first few days walking around, they can tell their legs feel better. Or when people have a pinched nerve in their neck and you do a cervical disc replacement, and, which is an outpatient procedure, oftentimes they wake up in the recovery room and their arm starts to feel a lot better. But they usually get about 70, 80% relief quickly. And now they spend the next few weeks going through therapy to, to work on that last 30, 40%. Like I had a patient today. She, uh, she had severe lumbar stenosis. I did surgery on her four months ago and she's doing pretty well so far. And the first question I asked her is what percentage improvement have you made so far? She's, she said, I'm 80% better compared to where I was before the surgery. So I was like, okay, so then what's, what are the remaining symptoms? Well, I'm still having some back tightness, some discomfort, some aching in my back. And I've got some some pains around my hips, but a lot better. But I still have those symptoms. And then that's when I start to go into, OK, what have you been doing with physical therapy? Are you doing your daily exercises? No, I'm not. I'm working out maybe twice a week. And I let her know, I'm like, you know, the first 80 percent is pretty easy. The last 20 percent takes a lot of work. And that's where the rehab part is so critical. Yeah. And, and I really, I, I really make sure my patients understand that. And I make them commit to, fit, to to post-op therapy ahead of time, because you have to lay, you have to lay the expectations. You have to let them know that, you know, there's a lot of work that takes place after surgery.
0: Yeah. Cause I, I think that's something that I've seen in the past where where people will show up after surgery and they're like, why am I not better? I should be better. I should be yeah. better. I should be hundred percent better by now. And I'm like,
1: <laughs> well, the, the way that I like to explain it to people is I'll say, listen, this is the, this is the pre-surgical conversation. I'll say, Right now, you are so far behind the starting line. We're doing surgery to get you back to the starting line. Once you're there, you have to start running the marathon. And uh-huh. the marathon is for the rest of your life. And you start working with a physical therapist, they'll get you started mm-hmm. the first couple of laps. But then after that, you have to take the baton and keep up with it on a daily basis. That's, that's the way that I try to frame it to my patients. And I think it works you know, and I mean, there are different, you know, different people are motivated differently, but right. You know, for the concept is, you, you know, you, you're not starting at zero. You're starting behind.
0: I, I love, I think it was like Louis CK or some comedian had like a bit about when he went to physical therapy and it was like, you know, like, like they tell me to do these exercises and they say, and, and I said, for how long? And they were like, for life. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, you're damn right. For life. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think it's one of those things where, you know, here, what we do at big league is, is isn't just the reactive part of it where they come in with an injury, it's like, all right, we've gotten you out of pain. How can we keep you out of pain? Cause I think yes. that's like the next step Because I think it's one of the things now we have so much technology to, or, or, you know, where we're at just in, in the medical world where we can, you know, help you with your lower back pain, we can help you with your knee pain. We can help you with this. We, you know, even in outside of the orthopedic world, you know, we, we, you know, we have the medicine, you know, if you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, we can help you with those kind of things. But, um, you know, those are all reactive methods. I don't think we move the needle forward with healthcare until we can prevent these things from happening. You know, we can yeah. treat cancer, we can treat blood pressure, we can treat cholesterol. But wouldn't it be better if we just prevent these things from happening in the first place?
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, the analogy is like, it's like, who, who's the more successful cardiologist, the cardiologist who has 10 patients in the hospital, and he just performed their stents? or the cardiologist that prevented those 10 patients from getting the stents in the first place. Exactly. You know, and again, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a fair example, but it, it, yeah, I mean, I think in the medical community, in the medical world, really it's on us to to try to find better ways to prevent injuries, you know, to, 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 to educate patients on prophylaxis, because that's everything. I mean, that's, that, that's the only way we're going to advance, you know, as a society.
0: Yeah. I I think being reactive is not enough anymore. I think we need to take that next step and how can we be proactive in our, in our treatments? Yeah. Um, Speaking of which, now we just talked about your foray into deadlifting. Now you're a, you're a CrossFitter. You're, 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 you're a uh, a member at district CrossFit here.
1: I spent a lot of years talking poorly about CrossFit. I mean, I'd say the first four years of my career, I mean, I I saw so many CrossFit injuries. So what, and, what
0: made you jump into CrossFit of all things? So,
1: well, I mean, one of my really close friends started, I mean, started at the age of I think 39, he got into CrossFit and he's always been a great athlete, but you know, he just needed a better way to work out. So he joined the CrossFit gym in DC. Um, and for the first year that he was CrossFitting, and this is true like anyone who, who goes into CrossFit, he would not shut up about CrossFit. <laughs> and it, and it, it got to the point where it was so obnoxious and he would, you know, and I, and I, I kept working out in like in the building, in the, in the gym, in the building. And, you know, I always did the very basic things, you know, basic lifts, basic stretches, you know, nothing. And were um, you, were no you quality. an athlete growing up? Yeah. I mean, I, I played tennis and basketball growing up. Um, I mean, I always, I always worked out, you mm-hmm. know, three times a week throughout college, med school, residency. Like I always, you know, stayed in shape. Yeah. But again, I mean, there's a big difference between staying in shape and being in CrossFit shape. I mean, those are two totally different things. And even within the CrossFit world, you have... Good CrossFitters, you have great CrossFitters, and you have people who are just freaks of nature, and that are sort of like in the elite level, elite yes. category. And I am not even a good CrossFitter yet. Like I mean, I'm still just trying to learn some of the basics and not flare up when I do those basic moves. Um, but I, I just needed a better way to work out. I needed to add uh, more mobility into my routine. I had to add more cardio, and then you know, just the energy, the gym. When you show up to the gym, and everyone's doing the same workout. And the music is pumping and you have a coach who's critiquing you on your technique. And it's just, you know, you, you get into this like, you know, tribe mentality that just kind of pushes you beyond your limits, which can be a good thing and a bad thing. And my experience at 37 and I started CrossFitting when I was 36 and it, I fell in love with it immediately. I fell in love. But again, that's a testament to the coaches we have you know, Nick and Amon at uh, DC CrossFit, because they harp on mobility, they harp on good technique, they won't let you do something if they see you doing it wrong. You know, they're all about scaling and making sure that you're not going to hurt yourself. And, and so that's really important to find a good CrossFit coach. Thank and you. I just I quickly fell in love with it, mostly because I was for the first time in years working on my mobility, I realized I had deficits that I never even thought about, especially with my shoulders. I mean, I had very tight shoulders, my hips were okay, not as bad as my shoulders. Um, and then tight wrists. I mean, like things that I never even thought were would, would be an issue. So I realized, okay, if I start doing this thing now at 36, well, maybe you know, 20 years from now, if I'm still doing it, and again, I don't have to be competitive, but if I'm still doing it, then now maybe I can be a 90 year old, you know, centenarian Olympic participant. So there you go. It, it kind of changed my entire outlook on you know where I want to take my body for the next few decades.
0: There you go. I, I love it. So so do you recommend CrossFit to your patients? Not all of them, obviously, but you know, um,
1: Yeah, a, I mean, well, I, I tell them with my patients in general, I, I tell them to find something they're gonna love. I think that's the most important thing. If you don't love it, you're not gonna do it. Not so, gonna do it. Amen. So you know best patients, exercise program is one you're gonna do. Yeah, exactly. And you know, at the end of the day, yeah, yes, certain programs are better than others, probably, but it doesn't matter. The most important thing is consistency. So if you want to the best program in the world, you're doing it once a month it's not going to help. If you're walking every single day, it's better than, you know, not doing anything. So I tell them to find something. I'm usually, I, I, I love, I love yoga. I love Pilates. Um, I love CrossFit, obviously, but anything that's going to be a combination of strengthening, stretching, conditioning, some cardio, you know, it, it has to have sort of all those elements for it to be, I think a good workout, And then something that they enjoy where they're going to keep doing it regularly. I think that's the most important thing.
0: And, uh, deadlifting is, is good for your back, right?
1: I think deadlifting is one of the best workouts.
0: I think it's I, I I think it is. If you gave me one, if I if you said, Mike, give one exercise to everybody to do for the rest
1: of their life, it'd it's be deadlifting. deadlifting. Absolutely. It's deadlifting. And then maybe maybe uh maybe a back squat as a as a close second. Maybe reverse lunge. I'm a big reverse lunge guy. Oh really? Okay. Big reverse lunge. A little single leg
0: strength, push your chain, um, you know, a little bit more of a, a functional movement pattern. I mean, squat is obviously very important too, but yeah, I'm I'm a big reverse lunge guy. But anyway, um all, 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 three other plays, but i um, dead deadlift is, is still the king in my opinion. Yeah. Um, all right. We are running out of time here. I wanted to, uh, ask a few more questions, more personal questions before we, uh, uh finish up here. What's, uh, what's the last book you read?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. So, well, the book I'm currently reading is called the code of the extraordinary mind. Uh, by Vishen Lakyani. And it's just, it's, it's a very holistic approach on thinking about life differently. So his whole thing is, you know, we live in a world where there are so many rules and there are so many, um, you know, there's so many boundaries and, you know, society tells you all these things that have to happen a certain way. But when you start to challenge those things, you'll oftentimes you start to realize that you don't necessarily have to live your life a certain way. And he gets, you know, he starts off with that and then he gets into, uh, a lot of meditative techniques and a lot of sort of, you know, holistic, like mental health techniques. And I love it. It's been a great book.
0: Nice. Um, all right. What's the, uh, what are you watching on TV these days?
1: Oh man. You know, I don't watch a lot of TV. Good for you. Uh, usually when I do have a little bit of time to watch TV, it's usually Jim Cramer at 6 PM on CNBC to see what's going on (laughs) with the world. All right. the The world. Fair
0: enough. Fair enough. Um, so now, are you, are you from the D.C. area?
1: Uh, I grew up here for the most part. I moved to D.C. when I was seven. Okay. And I went to high school, went to middle school, high school here. Then I went to undergrad at Emory in Atlanta. Okay. Med school, at University of Maryland in Baltimore. I stayed there for residency. I, I did my orthopedics training at University of Maryland and at Shock Trauma. Okay. And then I did my spine surgery fellowship at UCSD in San Diego. Spent nice. one sweet year out there.
0: Nice. nice. Then, so, so you're a local guy?
1: Yeah, for the most part.
0: Uh, what's, what's one thing you'd recommend to that, that everybody should, should experience here in the, in the DMV area
1: as a, as a tourist or someone who's living here
0: as someone who's living here.
1: Um, Ooh, that's a good question. I, I didn't realize how amazing it is. As soon as you're like 10, 15 miles outside of DC, like Uh there are so many cool things to do outside the city. You know, you can drive an hour and a half and go out to the Shenandoah and do like the old rag trail and have like an incredible weekend there. Just, you know, being out there. Mm -hmm. You can go out to all the wineries out in northern Virginia. You can, you know, you you can go. I'm a a big big winery. winery, Yeah, yeah? that's (laughs) nice. Um, You know, obviously you have the eastern shore, which is beautiful. You have places like Lake Anna, you know, that have, uh, you know, just, just great summer destinations. I didn't realize just how much how how many cool things were around the area. You can just do quick local trips and just have a great weekend.
0: There you go. Here in the city, I mean I
1: I just love the multicultural environment. I love being able to meet people of all walks of life. You hear different languages, you meet people from all over the world, you know, maybe less so now with COVID, but (laughs) back.
0: What one thing this question has evolved has evolved into over the last month or so is uh, the best burger in DC.
1: Mm. It's become
0: a a common, common thread here. What what is your take on the best burger here in DC?
1: I'd say, pr- the, the, well, it's not here anymore, but there's this place called Kiff and Kin, which was uh, yeah. it was uh, it was at uh, the it was like the ground floor of the um, Intercontinental. Yes, killer burger, burger. Okay, um, yeah.
0: What do you what do you got for places that are still in existence?
1: Man, that's a good question. I would have to say Shake Shack. Ken shake
0: Shack. <laughs> uh, you know, Shake Shack's got a good burger. It's got a good burger. And I, I actually just read um, uh, Danny Meyer's Setting the Table, which is yeah. all about uh, how he incorporates the hospitality, like his hospitality background in like running a business and yeah. a great book. And it it's one of those things like, I don't know if you've seen the movie, The Founder about like McDonald's. No. And it, it made me crave Shake Shack for like a month. I'm just like, I need to get a Shack Burger. Is it a
1: documentary or is it a movie?
0: It's a book. Oh, I'm sorry. The the Danny Meyer book is it, it's a it's a book, but the founder was a movie. It's got Michael Keaton in it. Um, it's 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 a, it's a movie. Uh, I think it maybe won an Oscar. It was definitely nominated for an Oscar. Uh, it's really good. It's, it's, I think it's on Netflix. I'd uh, I definitely recommend watching it. it. It's it it's a, more about how the guy behind the founding of McDonald's was like an asshole, but um, it still made me crave McDonald's for like a month. You know you know
1: you know McDonald's number one business. The big they're the they're, they're number one money maker
0: real estate yeah is
1: not
0: that crazy yeah and that. so that's what that's what the that's what the, the movie was about is is about how basically you know they made McDonald's made everything work is that they basically shifted from like being fast food company to a real estate company
1: yeah
0: um so yeah really really interesting stuff but it again it was about like I said it was about that kind of stuff but yet I saw them making the burgers I was like I need a, I need to get a, a big mac I need a big mac <laughs> um but But yeah, so uh, Oliver, uh, thanks for coming on the show, man. Um, If people want to connect with you, how can they get in touch with you?
1: Uh, I mean, the easiest way probably on uh, Instagram, just Dr. Oliver Tanous on Instagram. Uh, Same on Facebook.
0: T-A-N-N-O-U-S. Correct. Correct. And on Facebook as well. Excellent. And then you're at Washington Hospital Center
1: only? Yeah, my, I, I do all my surgeries at MedStar Washington Hospital Center. I see patients there, and I, I go out to Mitchellville one day a week in the PG County area. Gotcha. Um, but spend most of my time in D.C.
0: Cool. Oliver, thanks for coming on the show, man, and yeah, uh, we'll having, definitely be talking soon.
1: I'm looking forward to it.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Move the District today. If you want to find out more about our guests or about Big League Performance Rehab and how we can help you continue to be active and pain-free, Head over to BigLeaguePerformanceAndRehab.com to learn more. Thanks, and until next time, keep moving, DC!